Romans chapter 1 and the book of Habakkuk. Put your finger in both places. If you can't find Habakkuk and you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 997. And if you're not, well, then you can either look in your, uh, whatever that thing is at the front of your Bible is called, or if you're in your, your minor prophets, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you get to Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi, you've gone too far. So you need to go back. And it's hard, easy to miss because you've only got three chapters, right? So easy to ma- pass over. And no, you did not accidentally walk into our Old Testament survey class. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the book of Habakkuk this morning. First of all, though, let's read from Romans chapter 1, the passage that we are in, verse 16 and verse 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then look at Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk 2, 4. The Lord says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would... uh, Minister to our hearts again as you've already done through the songs that we've sung and recounting the glorious truths of the gospel. We ask that now you would minister to us through the preaching of your word. Lord, I ask that you would uh, empower me and enable me uh, to communicate the truths that we see here in a way that are understandable. And I ask, Spirit, that you would apply them to each of our hearts. I pray that you do that first to my heart, Lord, that I'd preach to myself and then to everyone else here. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are currently in Romans 1, and verses 16 and 17, if you didn't catch the correlation already, right? Paul is quoting from this passage in Habakkuk 2, and that's why we're in Habakkuk today. Because Paul's statement, that one in in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, is probably probably the most important statement Paul makes in the entire book, right? Everything else is kind of based off of that that statement. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Habakkuk uses it. We're going to look at it in its original context and and see how it relates to what, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. The theme, really, of the entire book of Habakkuk is that phrase, how the righteous live by faith, okay? So that's why we want to look at it. This statement that that Habakkuk quotes, Paul doesn't use it only in Romans chapter one. It's actually used two other times in the New Testament. There's a subtle difference in how it's used. Paul uses it in Galatians chapter three and verse 11. And there he's talking about how uh, he's using this quotation to show that righteousness does not come through law keeping, but through faith. So he quotes Habakkuk 2 to make that point. And then it's also used in Hebrews chapter 10, and it's a whole section, verse 32 through 38. And the writer of Hebrews there, he's using this quotation from Habakkuk 2 to encourage his readers to continue to live by faith in the midst of challenging and difficult circumstances, hardship and suffering. 
Then in Romans chapter one, what we already read, Paul is quoting from Habakkuk and his usage of this statement is to show us how righteousness comes to us. How righteousness comes to us. And that is by faith, right? You don't, as as we see in Galatians 3, you don't get the righteousness of God imputed to you through the things that you do, law keeping, but you get it simply by faith. In Galatians 3, that's the point. And then in Hebrews 10, he is making the point that the righteous live by faith in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And that's the point, that's the usage of it in Habakkuk's book. Uh, the, the Lord is speaking to Habakkuk and he is essentially telling Habakkuk, you and all the other faithful Jews of your time and your context and the, the issues that you're dealing with, you need to trust me and you need to walk by faith as I work wonders in your midst that you would not believe. Okay, so that's kind of the, the, how Habakkuk uses this phrase and how we're gonna look at it today. Now, uh, what we're gonna do when we come to a book like Habakkuk, you got to set the context for it, right? We do that every time we come to uh, any book of the Bible. We need to know its historical setting and things like that. So I'm going to give us just a brief history lesson. And for some of you, this is going to be a bit redundant because we've covered this many times in our Old Testament survey. But for those of you that it's not redundant, you can all pay attention, I guess, together, right? So Habakkuk is a, what, what we call often, right, one of the minor prophets. And they're minor because they're smaller. And really, it's all one, it's 12 different prophets. Their writings have been collected together into one single book, which we call the 12. And this whole prophecy by these 12 different individuals covers a span of nearly 300 years at the end of the nation of Israel's uh, time in the land, okay? They're about to be exiled from the land. So what the nation of Israel's history, you'll recall the significant events of them being brought out of Egypt, right? Where they're formed into a nation. God gives them his law at Mount Sinai, and this really establishes them as a nation. And for the first 500 years or so of their history, they didn't have any kings ruling over them, right? They were ruled by judges and prophets. They were ruled by the Lord through these men. But ultimately, we read in Samuel, right, that the people longed to have a king, and so they got one, and they got Saul. But Saul ultimately was not the, the king that was to rule over the nation of Israel. The throne was taken from him because of his sin. And what did the Lord do? He chose a man after his own heart, David. All right, and to David, the Lord made that wonderful covenantal promise that he and his, his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Right? As long as there was a king in Israel, the king would be from the line of David. Well, David ruled and died. And then his son Solomon came on the scene. And after Solomon came his son Rehoboam. And this is where it's really important for us to understand the context of of Habakkuk's day. Rehoboam did something very foolish. He listened to poor counsel and he ended up dividing the kingdom into two. So Israel is one nation. Now they're two nations. And we call them Israel and Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. And here's the other thing that we need to think about. When the nation of Israel, they find their identity in, in people, Right? And specifically two men, Abraham and Jacob, right? the grandson of Abraham. So they would say our forefather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But beyond that, they also find their identity in one of Jacob's sons. He had 12 sons, right? So, Root, and I won't name them all because I'll fail, but think of Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Asher, those guys. right? So they'd say, I'm of the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Judah, Okay, so they find their identity in these men. So 10 of these tribes broke off and formed the nation of Israel, which is in the north, and two of them made the nation of Israel in the south, and that is Judah and Benjamin. Well, what tribe was David from? The tribe of Judah, 
right? What ultimately does Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah, right? That's why Jesus is a king in the line of David. So the nation of Israel is divided into two. Now, Israel had a problem all throughout their history, and their problem was sin, right? We all have that problem, but they especially committed the sin of idolatry, and they were adulterous to the Lord. And so because of their sin, the Lord brings judgment on the nations, okay? And this is where the prophets like Habakkuk come in. And their job was to call the people to repentance, right? They'd hold up the law and say, hey, you've failed to obey God's law. There's judgment coming for it. Repent, and you can avert the wrath to come. But if you don't, judgment will sur- surely soon, soon visit you. Well, ultimately, neither Israel in the north or Judah in the south repented. And because of their sin, judgment fell upon them. And that judgment was removal from the promised land, a land that God had promised to Abraham and said, your descendants will have this land. So what they had finally come to have after 400 years of, exile, or of enslavement in Egypt is taken away, from this, that, taken away from them. And this happens at two different times. One, the first Israel is exiled in 721 BC, and then later Judah is exiled in 586 BC. Well, Habakkuk comes on the scene around the year 630. So he's, he's prophesying uh, nearly 100 years after the northern kingdom has been removed from the land, and about 50 years before Judah will be exiled. And Habakkuk is looking forward to the day when Judah will be exiled by the Babylonians. Okay, the Babylonians, we remember because of Nebuchadnezzar, and we remember because of Daniel. That was the, the guys that came, or Nebuchadnezzar was the one that came in and exiled them. And Habakkuk's prophecy is also unique because uh, he's not preaching He's not addressing a specific audience. It's actually a conversation between him and the Lord. And then it ends with a song. So what I want to do is just briefly kind of explain the book. And then we're going to make some some points from this. Okay, so the book is structured around a series of complaints and the Lord's response. The first complaint comes in chapter one, and it's the first four verses. And here Habakkuk is, is asking why the Lord does not seem to be responding to the injustices in the nation of Israel, okay? Um, In Habakkuk's day, right before the good and godly King Josiah was evil King Manasseh. Manasseh was terrible, right? He offered his own sons as offerings on the altar of Molech, uh, filled the city with idols, totally corrupted the proper worship of God. So the nation is in pretty dire straits after Manasseh. So Habakkuk's asking the question, Why are you not responding to the injustices of the nation? So this leads to the Lord's response in verses 5 through 11. And he responds and he says he's doing something about the evil of the nation. And what he's doing is he's bringing the Chaldeans or the Babylonians against them in judgment. So this leads Habakkuk to ask another question, or to actually another complaint we would call it, in verse 12 of chapter 1. And so here he asks, well, if you're bringing the, the Chaldeans in judgment, how long are you going to allow them to mercilessly go on killing nations that are not as wicked as they are, right? Because they were a pagan nation, right? They had no, uh, no worshipers of Yahweh amongst them. So he's asking, when will the Lord judge? And then this leads to the Lord's final answer, starting in chapter 2 and verse 2, and then it goes all the way uh, to the end of the chapter. And here the Lord declares that he will destroy the Chaldeans who are proud. But he says, the righteous, those who are like Habakkuk, they are to live by faith, trusting the Lord, believing what he has said. 
They hear these words, they believe what God has promised to do, and they live by faith. So this leads us to chapter 3, which is a, a song of praise from Habakkuk, where he recounts the Lord's faithfulness in the past. And he concludes at the end of this in verse 16, that even though he's fearful about what is to come upon him, he says, I will sit here quietly, I will wait, I will find my joy, I will find my strength in the Lord. Okay, so this is kind of the book of Habakkuk summarized. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time is maybe make eight observations. We'll see if we get to eight. I don't know if we will, but make a number of observations about what Habakkuk is teaching us. And I think it really is this. How does or what does a righteous person living by faith look like? All right, so Paul is going to apply this as well as we get on later in the book of Romans, that, that those of us who have come to Uh, who have come to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith, we are to continue to live by faith. In the same way that we receive the gospel, so we live. That is by faith, believing God and taking him at his word. The first point I'm going to make is found in chapter 2 and verse 4, which we already read. And this is that, that the righteous are to live by faith always. Yeah, this is kind of the first, the most important, the point that the, all the other points fall under, okay? In Habakkuk's context, in his circumstances, right, they're quite bleak, right? Uh, he knows that a future day of judgment is coming, and, and so this, the circumstances are grim. But he needs to learn to live by faith, trusting God, even when he does not fully understand what God is doing or how this will all pan out in the end, right? So he knows that, that God's wrath is coming, but he's not certain how it's all going to pan out. Okay, this is what verse four is telling us. The other thing you'll notice in verse four is that it's contrasting the righteous living by faith, trusting God with the unrighteous person, right? Who is not trusting God. That person is is called proud, right? They're puffed up. It's not upright within them. When it comes to taking God at his word, waiting for God to fulfill his promise, the unrighteous is not interested in that, right? That's what chapter two and verse three is, is talking about. The unrighteous person has no time to wait for the fulfillment of the vision. They have no time to wait for God to do what he has said to do. They're just living by what their eyes see. As we look at what Habakkuk is, is teaching us, again, we're doing this as people that have received the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are to live in this way. So here's the question that we need to answer in this first point. What does it mean to live by faith, okay? Well, we have to first to determine and ex- d- describe what faith is, okay? So here's, here's simply, I think, uh, a definition. In the context of the Bible, faith is to simply take God at his word, right? Very basically, we believe what God has said. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, faith is not believing in God. It is believing God, right? There's a, there's a very distinct difference, right? Because what does James say? Even the demons believe that God exists. They tremble, but they don't believe in him in a saving way, right? So it is believing in God. David Chapman, a commentator, said this. He said, biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence, not an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy. 
The God who has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ, whose promises have proven true from generation to generation, who will never leave or forsake his own. So biblical faith is a confident trust in the God who has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in his word and through the person of Jesus Christ. And the other thing to think about with living by faith, it is to take God at his word and it is to act upon what God has said, right? Biblical faith is not passive, but it's active, right? We're always acting on what we believe to be true. If I believe this thing is true, then I'm going to, to respond in a certain way. You think about this in terms of, of salvation, right? I think one of the, you can, we can ask somebody, you know, uh, we, we speak of coming to the gospel in a past tense term often, right? Like I believe that at one time, I walk through the door of salvation and then I'm kind of done with that. But true saving faith continues to believe the gospel. And so the question isn't, you know, if you're wrestling with doubt and insecurity, the question is what, what I believed 10 years ago question is, what am I believing right now? What am I resting in right now? Do I believe the gospel? Faith is also neither, it's not static. And by that, I mean, it, it, it's not unwavering, right? We have moments of weak faith, questions of doubt and insecurity, right? So therefore, we are to continually be realigning ourselves with the truth of God's word. And that comes through the means of grace God has given us, right? His word, study of his word, fellowship with his people. That's how we continue to, to bolster our faith. Uh, I, I reference it a number of times, especially when we, when we sing the song, Jesus is Better, but the man in Mark 9, right? Here's a man whose faith was weak and faltering, comes to Jesus with his sick son, says, if you can do anything to help him, and what's Jesus' reply? All things are possible for the one who believes, and the man cries, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right? So faith is active, it's not static, it needs to be bolstered, and it's bolstered through the word of God. So as we continue on in Habakkuk, what I think we'll see is Habakkuk has a proper understanding and a growing understanding of the object of his faith, right? and that perseveres him in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances. So the righteous are to live by faith always. That's the first point. We have to get that, otherwise we won't get anything else. Secondly, I want you to notice this. The righteous have a proper and a growing understanding of providence. Look at a couple of verses, chapter one and verse five. We'll look at this in just a minute. Providence is the means by which God's sovereignty is exercised. All right, God's sovereignty is his right to do as he pleases. It, it, it's a term of, of kingship and authority, right? He is when we think of, uh, you can use this term in, in uh, like the Queen of England, she is the sovereign of England. Well, God is sovereign over all things, right? Because he is the creator and ruler. But providence speaks of how God accomplishes his purposes, right? Providence is the means by which his purposes are fulfilled. So Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. I believe that's the providence of God. God has aims for his glory to be known in all the earth, right? We're going to read this in just a minute in chapter two. And providence is the means by which he brings that about, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, John Piper, his 700 some page book on providence says that God, that providence is God seeing to it that things happen in a certain way right? He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. So notice a couple of things. Chapter one, verse five, 
The Lord says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk is to be astounded at what God is doing. He is to marvel and to worship at what God is doing. And the providence of God here is that he is bringing the Babylonians against Judah to destroy them. And yet that destruction will ultimately lead to their salvation. They're going to be exiled from the land for 70 years. And when they come back, they're going to be a changed people, right? That's the providence of God, that he would use something like an evil nation destroying another nation to further his eternal purposes. Look at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We understand that a providential outlook sees nothing as an accident, A providential outlook knows that God will accomplish all of his purposes, right? So look at verses 13 and 14. Well, actually look at verse 12. We'll start there. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So what he's saying here is he wants Habakkuk to see that even the vain work of building a fire or a nation coming in and destroying another nation, all of that is ordained by the Lord. And then look at verse 14. This is God's goal, right? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think what we're supposed to see here is that all, even the the vain workings of man, the sinful workings of another nation, the Lord is using to bring about his purposes to spread the, the knowledge of his glory all over the earth, right? Providence is God's using all of these things to forward his purposes. Some would think that providence is fatalistic, right? If everything in the world is purposed and ordered by God, then is not everything mechanical and we're all just puppets, right? So to this, Charles Spurgeon says, fate is this, whatever is must be. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. The doctrine of providence is not what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. Right? God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He will accomplish his purposes. And as Christians, we read chapter 2, verse 14, and we go, amen, we want that, right? The earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's a fantastic thing. And when we understand that God is using all things to reach that end, we go, hooray, Right? Providence is a wonderful doctrine that we can then found ourselves upon. This also means that the mundane things that we do in life, right? Every single thing is being used by the Lord to forward his purposes. So living by faith sees the providence of God in all things, and therefore we should be seeking to grow in our understanding of God's providential workings in the world. Thirdly, the righteous know God's character and they worship him for it. Habakkuk has, it's a very short book, right? Uh, But has some beautiful statements about who God is. Okay, listen to a couple of these. Chapter one, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Chapter one, verse 13. You who are pure, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Look at chapter two, verse 14, which we already read. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Chapter two, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before him. Look at chapter three, verse two. Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. When we read Habakkuk's complaints, what does the Lord not do? Does he rebuke him? No, he doesn't because Habakkuk's complaints are right, right? Uh, he, he knows the righteous character of God and his complaint is based upon that, right? So in these verses, you see a couple of things, right? Habakkuk knows these truths about God. He knows his eternality, his everlastingness, his always having existed. He knows the covenantal promises made to Abraham, David, and the nation, and he knows the Lord won't forsake them. He knows the purity of God, that he can do no wrong and no sin can be in his presence, right? All that he does is just and right. He learns in chapter two, verse 14, what God's goal is for all of creation. Chapter two, verse 20, he learns that God is not silent like the idols of the nations. No, he's in his temple, he's ruling, he is alive. Therefore, all creation should be in silence and awe before him. And then in chapter three, as we'll see in a minute, he knows the works of God and that moves him to a reverential awe. God, I, I, he, I've heard of you. I know what you're doing. And he goes on to recount those. So this is a, the, a, a principle of knowing the object of our faith well. Now, he knows the character of God. He knows his Bible. He knows the promises of God and he worships him for it. And this is something, right? We use this in everyday language as well, right? This knowing the object of our faith. And we use it often in terms of being uh, those who are able to make a good sound judgment about a person's characteristics, right? We're able to make a determination of whether someone is trustworthy or an object, a a reliable object of faith. Um, I think of that, whenever I think of this, I think of the Barney Fife or the Andy Griffith episode. You know what I'm talking about? Where Barney Fife buys a car from a grandma and he, it's, a, it's a sweet old grandma that comes to him. And of course, she's got this car. It's a great deal. She's never driven it over 25 miles an hour. She only ever drives it to church on Sunday. And Barney's determination is, oh, I, I, I'm a good judge of character, right? She's a worthy object of faith. So he just takes her, takes her at, his, at her word and buys the car. And of course, he sold a lemon, right? And so the, the problem is, is that he makes a determination about her worth as an object of faith and acts upon that with no... like objectional or no objectivity, right? There's no evidence to prove that except for the things she's saying. Well, that's maybe like all illustrations that one breaks down. But I think Habakkuk's point is that we come to know objective truth about the character of God and grow to know that he is a proper object of of, of our faith through the word. Right, the word of God reveals to us the character of God. Habakkuk, all these, these statements that he makes about God, we can find these all over the Old Testament. Right? If he's familiar with the other prophets, he's familiar with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, he knows these truths. He knows that God is a worthy object of faith. We know nothing personally about God outside of his revealed word. So to live by faith is to live knowing and ever growing in the knowledge of the object of our faith. And this is not accomplished apart from knowing God through his word. So to live by faith is to know the object of our faith. Fourth, look at chapter three. The righteous recount the glorious deeds of the Lord to bolster their faith. 
The righteous recount the glorious deeds of the Lord to bolster their faith. Again, remember Habakkuk's context. He's fearful of impending judgment. And there is a temptation in the midst of difficult seasons to ask, will God come through? Is he going to be faithful to what he's said? Can I trust the promises of God in the most difficult seasons of my life? At the same time, I think we're tempted in this way when we're at ease, right? Everything's going well. I don't need to trust the glorious promises of God, right? I've got this thing figured out. What do I need God for? Isn't he only for crises? Well, what Habakkuk does in chapter three is that he recounts that righteous people recount the glorious deeds of the Lord. They recount the promises of God. And I'm not gonna read all of this, but it's verse three through verse 15. And I just wanna point a couple things out here where he rehearses the mighty acts of God performed on behalf of the nation of Israel. Look at verse four. Here he's describing in poetic language the appearance of the Lord to the nation of Israel. So think of that scene at Mount Sinai, right? Where the Lord appears and smoke, and lightning, and fire, and thunder, and speaks from a mountain, right? He recounts, hey, this is in your history, nation of Israel. You've got this wonderful thing. The Lord has appeared and has spoken to you. Verse five, he talks about the plagues that were brought upon Egypt, going before them and behind them, plague and pestilence. Verse seven, he talks about afflicting other nations to deliver and bring his people into the promised land. All of this, the Lord is acting on their behalf. Verses eight and nine, he splits the water to deliver his people out of Egypt and he splits the water to deliver them into the promised land. Verses 11 and 12, he performs wonder in battle to preserve his people. Here, I think he might be referencing that scene in Joshua 10, right? Where the Lord holds the sun still so they can keep the battle going and, and win a decisive victory, right? All of these things are the Lord, the, Habakkuk is recounting, the Lord has done these things on behalf of his people because he's faithful to his covenant promises. The Psalms are filled with, with instances like this where the psalmist is recounting, look what God has done. You've forgotten what he has done. You think he's abandoned you. No, here's proof. It's in your history. So Habakkuk is doing the same thing. And as Christians, we do the same thing as well, right? We should be recounting the glorious deeds of the Lord. When we gather together as a church, right? This is what we're doing. We're recounting, this is what, when we're exalting Jesus Christ, we're saying, this is what has been done for you. This is a glorious truth. This is what we are resting our hope in. We, we do this when we recount the faithfulness of God in, in personal ways, right? Uh, when we do our members meetings, the, my favorite part is hearing what God is doing in people's lives, right? People stand up and share, this is what the Lord has taught me. This is how he's been faithful, right? When we recount answers to prayer, recount uh, healings, when we recount uh, the way the Lord has sustained a person through difficult trial, all that serves to bolster faith, right? Uh, people that walk well through suffering, that's an example to others. Look, the Lord has preserved them. So we recount the glorious deeds of the Lord to bolster our faith, right? The righteous should continually be doing this. Number five, the righteous see through the farce of idolatry. Look at chapter one, verse 16. And this is in Habakkuk's complaint, his second complaint. And what he's doing is he is, in this, this passage, the Babylonians are personified as fishermen 
who, who go and they rejoice in their bountiful catch, and their bountiful catch are these other na- nations, but yet they don't recognize who actually gave these nations into their hands. So in verse 16, he says, uh, therefore, talking about the fishermen, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Then look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter two. This is the Lord speaking. He says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. The point is that living by faith is trusting the true and living God. These idols are exposed for what they are. There's, a, there's always a temptation in us, I think, to forsake trusting the true God and to go after other idols. Things are always clamoring for us going, this is a worthy object of your faith. This is something that you should be pursuing and putting all of your hope in, right? There's a, there's a consistent temptation to do that. However, as people who've been made right with God, we should be ever growing to see the folly of idolatry, right? We should look at these things that are saying, you need to invest all of your time and energy here and go, that's not gonna satisfy me. That's not gonna give me eternal purpose. We know who the true God is. We know what it is to trust him and we know that any idol doesn't truly satisfy. That's why we can be so miserable sometimes, right? Because we've gone after the other idols when we know the true and living God and we find it wanting. We're like, this is miserable. I know I shouldn't be pursuing this thing. I should be pursuing the true and living God. That miserableness is meant to turn us back to the Lord. The person who does not know God, who's not living by faith, who's not trusting the God of the Bible, does not know that idols cannot satisfy. That's why they worship them, right? In in chapter two, he's showing this logic that this, well, it's hashtag logic, not really logic, right? Uh, that, That this man makes an idol which cannot speak, overlays it with gold, and then says, you are my maker. That's stupid, right? That's the whole point. It's dumb. But because we don't know Uh, they don't know the true and living God, that's what they pursue. That's why they worship them. So to live by faith is to grow more and more disenchanted with what the world says will satisfy you. To be growing more and more disenchanted with what the world says will satisfy you. Finally, let's look at this. Chapter three and verse two. The righteous see and know how in wrath the Lord has remembered mercy. We're not going to get to all eight. We'll stop with this one today. But in, in Habakkuk's final prayer, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's a, like, just that statement by itself is a beautiful statement. Habakkuk knows that the wrath of God is right, for God is righteous. He's talked about that. So the wrath of God that's gonna be poured out on the nation for their sin is deserved, right? He's already stated that the Lord is too pure to look upon sin. So if God is that pure and righteous, then it would be unjust of him not to execute his righteous judgment against sin. And people who know 
God and take him at his word, know that his righteous character demands satisfaction. And we also know that he would be completely just if he were to wipe out all of creation for its cosmic rebellion against him. Right? That's a, we, we, we see the scriptures when we see the, what sin is, right? we know that God would be just in totally wiping everyone out. It's only by grace and mercy that he saves. At the same time, that's what Habakkuk is pointing to as well, that the Lord is merciful. So Habakkuk makes this plea, in wrath, remember mercy. And this has a contemporary application for Habakkuk, right? Shortly, the Jews will be exiled, wrath, but a remnant will be preserved, mercy. That remnant will go to Babylon and be there for 70 years and they'll flourish and they'll be brought back into the land and planted there. And there they will flourish. The Lord will visit them and they will be restored. So in wrath, the Lord remembers mercy. And there is no greater demonstration of this truth than on the cross. On the cross, and this is what Pastor Jess, I, I, I'm not trying to steal his application from last week, but it's kind of the same, right? On the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on Christ, right? Second Corinthians 5, for our sake, he became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes sin. The father cannot look upon the son because he is sin. He's bearing our sin for us. So the wrath of God is poured out on Christ. Go to Romans chapter three again and Again, Pastor Jess took us here last week, and I think it's fitting. I want to look at a little bit different aspect of what he brought out last week. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, I want to begin at the end of verse 24 and just look at this phrase. In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He brought out last week that propitiation is appeasement or it is as satisfaction. God's wrath is satisfied. What is that? That's what Jesus' blood is satisfying. God's wrath. The writer of Hebrews brings out that Jesus was made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. So God's wrath needs to be appeased to be satisfied because of sin. John brings this out in 1 John 2, right? He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath against us for our sins. And then the glorious truth of Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 is that that satisfaction, how does it come to us? By faith. You have God's righteous and holy wrath against you. you. It's justified, right? Because you're a sinner. You know it. We all know what it is to sin and to live into sin. But, and so God's wrath against us is a justified thing. But here's the glorious truth of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is averted from you and it is poured out on Christ, not on you. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. So when God pours out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus Jesus satisfies God's wrath, I think this is what Habakkuk is getting at. What do we get? Mercy, right? When God's wrath is satisfied against Jesus, we get mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. What is mercy? It is the withholding of what we rightly deserve. 
right? If it, if, if it is just for God to pour his wrath out on me for my sin, then mercy is saying, you deserve this, but you're not going to get it. Because in wrath, the Lord has shown mercy. In wrath, the Lord shows mercy, and by faith, we get complete righteousness and then continue to live by faith. That's the point of the book of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk closes in chapter three with these familiar but beautiful verses when he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Basically he's saying, when everything is as bad as it could possibly be, you don't have any food, can't provide for yourselves, life is pretty, pretty bleak. When all this happens, he responds in this way, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. How does that come about? By faith, right? I believe what God has said. In spite of all the circumstances around me, I take him at his word. I believe and I act upon that truth. That's what Christians do. That's what we ask the Lord to continue to produce in us. Lord, help us to live by faith in every circumstance of our lives. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have poured out your wrath on Jesus so that when we come to him by faith, we get mercy. We don't receive the wrath of God. It is no longer against us. And now, Lord, we live our lives by faith. We are all, uh, have different circumstances of life where we are tempted to walk by what we see and not by faith. For some of us, our, our faith is weak and it needs to be bolstered. And so we ask that you would do that Lord, apply these truths to our heart. Help us to live in a way that pleases you as we live by faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.